Hello, and you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you are safe and well as you tune into our episode this week. I hope you enjoyed the the long weekend last weekend and you're all fully tuned in to our new time. I know that the clock going back a bit uh, knocked me for six last week. So uh, um, it's taken me a while to adjust, but perhaps that's just a sign of age. I don't know. So we're looking forward to another cracker episode of Let's Go Green. But um, as you will know, if you've listened to the show for quite a long time, I'm a bit mad about dogs. I absolutely love pets. Um, my dog, Juno, frequently makes an appearance on the show. She comes to the studio with me on occasions. And in Midlands 103, indeed, we're very big into our pets. But I don't know if many of you, and I'm and I'm guilty of this myself, if I've thought about the impact on the environment from this industry that's grown up around having pets. And to tease this out a little bit further, I'm joined now by... A vet who has a special interest in climate change, Ellen Hagerty. Ellen, you're very welcome to Let's Go Green. Hello, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Now, Ellen, you have you've you're a vet, but you've also you've taken this particular interest and you've gone off and studied and masters it in in climate change. Originally, what was it that made you go down that particular route? Was it a particular concern that you had that seeing in your daily day practice or what what's, what inspired you to do it? Um, I suppose since I was a child, I've also always just had a huge interest in the natural world. And um, it's, I suppose I just didn't want to be, a, there's, there's no such thing as an innocent bystander. And I didn't want to be a bystander anymore in what is becoming the destruction of our beautiful natural world. And I wanted to try and figure out how I was best going to be able to do more. Um, but I felt in order to do more, I needed to know more. So I did a master's and um, I suppose, yeah, try to talk about climate change now. And I'm trying to implement changes, you know, at community level and through my professional life in any way that I can. Just so that I'm not just watching our world change for the worse without doing anything about it. And like... I like if I went into any pet shop, any veterinary practice, even any clinic with any kind of a shop attached to it nowadays, you're going to see mountains of maybe food wrapped in plastic, uh, toys to beat the band. You know, even like the leads probably made from some kind of plastic and collars and and all these gadgets that we buy for our pets um, that uh, some people spend an awful lot of money on. You know, even last week we had Halloween and you could see online pets being dressed up in as different Halloween characters. My Jack Russell may have bat wings, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, but I can even see on like from that basic level that maybe this is something that we need to talk about. But from a global yeah. level, like this, this is this is not just you and I having a pet dog. This is a, a massive issue, isn't it? That we just haven't really thought about much as, as a community. Yeah. So, look, I suppose the climate change and the biodiversity crisis, they are they're the, the biggest thing we're going to face as as a human race coming down the tracks. The IPCC, which is the International um, Panel on Climate Change, they've just um come out and clarified if we keep emitting at the levels we're emitting um we have six years until we have absolutely blown past any chance of staying below 1.5 degrees of warming 
And I think it's very, very clear that anything over 1.5 degrees of warming, we can see the changes right now that are happening at over one degree of warming. So we can see the impacts that we are having at the moment and going above 1.5 is going to have absolutely catastrophic impacts for humans, pets, wildlife, for all of the living things upon our planet. Um, but on the other hand, it's very clear we live in a society where it's, it's based on, I suppose, consumerism and selling stuff. And in the last 30 or 40 years, I suppose, look, Halloween, when I was a child, we dipped our faces in a bit of flour trying to take out the two pence and you know we were bobbing for apples or we had the kind of you know the plastic bag and the mask whereas nowadays like you know it's nearly a theatrical occasion for the family and as you say for the pet and it's because look pets are as much of a market as our children are as we are and it's there's a whole part of society there that's driven that's there to make us consume but I suppose what we have to think about is you know what kind of a footprint does that consumption carry and so me as a person um i i have an ecological footprint and so does my dog teddy he has an ecological footprint too and that ecological footprint means i suppose the impact that the choices that i make um and that i make for for ted the the impact that those choices make upon the the living planet be that the emissions that things I purchase are contributing to our atmosphere or maybe treatments that I'm using or the poo that he creates that are contributing maybe to the to the environment locally. And like on um, an individual scale, like, like you mentioned poo. Now, dog poo is an issue that is discussed on our airwaves Actually, very frequently on Irish Airways, we're kind of obsessed with it, but like for good reason, because some some dog owners are irresponsible and don't clean up after themselves. But I have found myself out on walks with Juno and, you know, you're doing what you think is the right thing and you're 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 putting the poo into the bag. And look, nobody likes talking about it. Never mind doing it. Right. None of us do it. But like parents have nappies to bin and, you know, so it's kind of equally disgusting. Right. And we've all had one of those. Um. Like on a basic level, we all as responsible, inverted commas, dog owners are supposed to have poo bags. Now, I know you can buy biodegradable ones and there are, I don't know how many dogs there are in Ireland, but it certainly feels like there's, if not a million, at least close to a million, particularly since the pandemic. Like if we're all having to buy these things to be responsible for others in the community, it it seems very difficult to be an environmentally friendly dog owner like are there um and like everything that we buy as you say it's so processed it's so like virgin plastic e um yeah. to coin a new phrase a terrible one um but like it's it doesn't it, i'm not sure that for the general pet owner that it's easy to imagine how we could do things a bit better or how we Absolutely. might make an impact yeah, and I totally get it. And it's like when I go to the supermarket, you know, you're there trying to look at a product and it's like, number one, is the product wrapped in plastic? Number two, where's the product come from? Who's made it? What, you know, like it, it could take you like four hours to do your shopping sometimes if you actually thought about it too much. So I suppose it's it's just, it's trying to make the best choices that you have and it's trying to inform yourself. And I suppose for pets, the biggest impact that our pets have um the first biggest impact really would be the food, the food okay. that they're eating and the food that we give them. Um, so number one, feeding your pet the right food is really important. 
the, the plastic that the, the, the food comes in is part of it, but it's actually the food that we're feeding them is the most important part. Um, and you've said yourself, you know, there's a huge industry after growing up around pets and how we feed our pets. And there's such a choice of foods available now as well. Um, and the the dried pet food globally, um, currently of, of cat, for cats and dogs, it's equivalent to the global emissions or it's equivalent to the emissions of the Philippines. Um, you know, and like we have about, we have so many pets and they all require to be, are all required to be fed. So the first thing is um, where is that food coming from um, and how much protein is in the food also. So food for pets, the best food from a climate and environmental point of view for feeding to pets is food that is not destined for humans in the first place. Because if we start competing, if our pets start competing with us for food, and for protein sources, well, then we're driving the footprint of that food even higher. And we're meaning we need more animals, we need more land, we need more of everything. And that's just driving emissions and driving pressure pressures on land and land use. So the first thing is, you know, the, the processed food that comes in the plastic bag probably isn't the worst food in the world from a climate point of view, because it will often use what we call animal byproducts. So it's food that's perfectly healthy and perfectly well, perfectly well balanced to feed to our pets. But um, at the same time, it's usually not competing with our own food sources. It could be a byproduct of the, the meat or other protein that, and other food that we're eating on a day-to-day -day basis. That's the first thing. The second thing is if your pet is being overfed, well, if you're feeding your pet one third more than your pet needs to be fed, um, you're actually increasing your pet's carbon footprint by a third by the food that they're being fed. So having your, fet, your pet slim and trim is actually good for your pet and your pet's health. It's good for your pocket because you'll be using less food and it's actually good for the planet as well. Thirdly, um, then looking at your own food waste at home, um, food waste and food and food waste is a third of all global emissions. So if you can look at your own food waste at home, number one, if you have leftovers, there is a kind of a hierarchy of how to deal with food and food waste. So if you have leftovers, the best thing you can do with your leftovers is try and reuse them and eat them yourself in the first instance, okay? Secondly, you could consider if you can't eat them or, or there's not enough left, could you potentially supplement your pet's daily commercial food diet with your leftovers? Now, I'm saying that, but trying to be really careful about the fact that, number one, it's very important that our pets have a balanced diet. And number two, it's very important that we don't feed our pets the wrong thing. And number three, it's really important that if our pets have any health issues, that we're cognizant of that and we don't feed them the wrong thing. But certainly here in our house, I have a very slim trim um, little small dog called Ted and he gets an awful lot of our leftovers. I'm always really careful that he doesn't get any bones which could cause damage to his intestines. He doesn't get any onions which are toxic. He doesn't get anything with raisins or grapes or chocolate but he if we can't finish something or there's only a tiny bit of food left we'll give that to Ted. That's supplemented with his balanced dry food diet um, it means we're using less dried food. It means less of our um, human food then is going into the compost bin, which is where it goes next before it goes, you know, before you put anything in the black bin, it, all should, it always should go in our brown bin. So that's actually reducing his impact um, and our impact um, from a climate and food waste point of view. Um, secondly, then there's a kind of a, a move towards trying to feed our pets really high protein 
foods as well and yeah and like foods you see these on... and they're, they're being like I, I get ads on social media all the time because obviously I've posted a picture of the dog at some point or other <laughs> you know who hasn't and like to you yeah, oh yeah it's absolutely it's like, you know, that's a whole other conversation um but like you know we get these ads of like high protein and I'm like think and there's a part you know I suppose I'm lucky in a way that I have a Jack Russell and Jack Russell's apparently I now know after having one for a number of years, I have sensitive stomachs. So I've had to go down the route of like getting the vet to tell me what food to give her and she gets that food yeah. and she does get leftovers because, you know, um, I just I hate throwing food in the bin. But there's only like you say, only the limited kind of leftovers that I know agree with her. Um. But if I hadn't been given that instruction, if I hadn't had a dog who was unwell, say, and I see these social media ads popping into my feed, it'd be very easy to think, well, do you know what? I'm supposed to eat more protein to help me feel fuller for longer. So maybe if I give the dog a higher protein meal, maybe the same thing will work for them and they'll be looking for treats less. You know, like I can see how people would feel, you know, pressured by all of this marketing into, um, buying stuff for their dog that the dog doesn't necessarily need absolutely yeah and it's all about I think balance at the end of the day so it's like a balanced diet trying to balance you know trying to balance the 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 cost to the environment with having you know us being healthy and our pets being healthy um and I think you know being able to talk to your vet obviously your vet was great now and gave you great advice um and vets are there to give advice on nutrition as well um, but, you know, I think certainly this new narrative that like some, you know, trying to give your pets, you know, huge amounts of protein, we again have to think about where is this protein coming from? How much land is being used to produce this protein? Is this is this protein source? Are, are humans and animals going to have to start competing now to try or to try and get protein for for feeding themselves? I did a master's and at one point during the master's, I was reading about um dog food that was fit for human consumption and people were able to put it in a burrito and eat it um, and in the same paper I was or I'd come across another paper and it was people in the states who were so poor they were having to eat cat food from tins because they were so just impoverished and, and needed to get a protein source and it's just you really start to wonder what's what's going wrong when people, you know, dogs in some parts of the world are getting human quality food and humans in other parts of the world are resorting to the cheapest cat food they can buy in the supermarket in order to feed themselves. And that's not to try and make anyone feel guilty for wanting the best for their pets. Like we all want the absolute best for our pets, but it's just we all, I think, have to try and put our kind of our, our climate goggles on mm. and think about the impact of our choices on the wider environment and I while think it's, having it, it's desperate to hear like given the context of like even the current news cycle which we won't get into but it's desperate to think that human beings will be eating you know a tin of cat food or a tin of dog food like that's horrendous but it does give us pause for talk it's it thought it's not about listeners being judged here or us as pet owners being judged but even just to make us think about what are the choices that we're making. And like we're heading into, well, some media outlets are already talking about it. I refuse to mention the C word because, you know, it's not. Is that, a certain, cats, I, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> until there's a certain date in the calendar, I shan't be mentioning it. But like, you know, once again, you know, all these toys that come out and all these bits and bobs, like 
are there like say for instance right if we if we look at the food and we think right we know this food is balanced we know that they're getting the leftovers from our plate that's the safe we're, we're doing our bit when it comes to food should we then be looking at um the other bits and bobs that pets come with, you know, whether it's a scratching post for a cat or a new lead for the dog, you know, should we be looking for and asking our pet shops to stock recycled, sustainable products, at least, you know, to even encourage them to sell more of those products as opposed to the new virgin plastic items? Absolutely. So I suppose the first thing to say is the most climate friendly product is the one that you don't buy at all. So that's the first thing. Um, and to also remember, it's not just for us that we're trying to make these changes. Our pets will suffer terribly with um, extreme weather. For example, we see with heat waves how much dogs suffer. Their little paws get burnt in the tarmac. They get heat stroke. Um, they end up, you know, they can they can end up with such awful heat stroke that they can die. It can predispose them. You know, certain dogs with underlying health conditions can get so much sicker as well. And that's not then even talking about the changing disease profiles that we'll get with, with changing weather patterns and seasonal changes as well. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be a fun sponge, but um, I suppose just like um, trying to think about the impacts. Does your pet really need a Halloween costume? Does your pet really? I know sometimes is it for us or is it for them, you know? Does it really need a stocking at Christmas or could you recycle one of the kids stockings and, and make it into your pet's stocking? And could you simply fill it with some little, you know, dog treats wrapped in 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 paper, wrapping paper? You know, do they they don't. And then also, for example, like if you do need a new lead, absolutely go and get a new lead. Um, and if you can if you can afford one that perhaps is making better choices from a climate point of view, that's amazing. But if you can't, getting a lead and not just buying other extra few bits and bobs as well, because everything that we buy has has a carbon footprint, just trying to avoid buying the extra stuff, that will help. Um, so I suppose getting the basics, cats from an, like a, an environmental enrichment point of view, they do need somewhere to scratch. And if a scratching post is what you need rather than getting your sofa wrecked, look, that's a climate friendly choice because buying a new scratching post is a lot um, less of an environmental impact than buying a new sofa after the cat shredded it. <laughs> so so that's there's no harm in doing that. Um, but, you know, buying them a full on Christmas outfit or buying out a new bed because it's Christmas and throwing out their old one. You know, they're ones that maybe you could stop and think, oh, do I really need to do this? How much benefit is my dog going to get from this? Um, and is this Christmas present more for the dog than for me? Would they be as happy with a toilet roll insert, you know, wrapped up um, with some little toy, with some dog food inside it and me and him playing for a little while together, um, seeing if he can get the, the food out? You know, would, would that be as, as much fun as going off and getting a full on plasticated stocking that's got all that plastic netting that could potentially impact wildlife if it's, if it's not disposed of yeah. afterwards. And like even if we did get, you know, the stocking or the outfit, like stick it in the washing machine and reuse it next year. Like, you know, 
okay, I have been given items. I may have gifted items as well yeah. around, you know, different themed or whatever. But my God, in our house, do they get washed and reused until they fall <laughs> apart, you know? So there is, we can do this and have fun and make the cheesy videos. And they're absolutely for us, not the pets. The pets don't care. <laughs> probably get too warm because we always have the fire on at that time of year anyway, or the heat up to sky high. But like, it is it is for us. Like, and we have to admit that. They don't, they don't necessarily need, and I know some very like light haired dogs might need a winter coat in very cold temperatures, which, you know, we don't really tend to get much of in Ireland. But like I, I get that. So it's about really being sensible about our choices, isn't it? You know, and it re- really is reusing. And we should say as well, Ellen, like there's so many charities around the country that are taking in abandoned or stray cats and dogs. And they're always like desperate. They don't have the money and they're inundated with animals needing homes. So like, you know, if you have an old bed that, you know, you want to get rid of for whatever reason, at least give it to the charity, like give it a good clean, a good per like spin dry clean. And like, you know, they need leads and all of those things. And they might even if they're in good enough quality, be able to sell them in their own shops. So at least then it's not going to landfill. Absolutely. Yeah. So reusing, repurposing, that's always a really, really, really good idea. Um, and then, you know, the poo coming back to the poo, actually picking up your poo is hugely climate friendly because the poo. So it's hugely climate friendly. Maybe if we could progress on to something like you were saying with the plastic bags, if we, you know, the compostable bags are, are certainly a help. But even if we could progress on to maybe some kind of a paper based bag, ultimately, that would be really cool. But um, picking up the poo is a huge climate win because, well, number one, it's it, <laughs> it's it's a huge win for everyone because having poo on your shoe is pretty grim. But um, the poo also washes nitrates into the water, into our water, local water systems. And that can, you know, impact. We all know, that the, you know, we've seen Loch Ney, we've seen the impact of nitrates in our water systems and all the, the, the kind of the scum and the, the environmental impacts that that carries. Also, it helps to reduce um, parasites. And potentially, if we can reduce our pets' exposure to parasites, it also then reduces the requirement for antiparasitics. Um, you know, the the warming tablets, the the other treatments that we we use regularly on our pets, and they carry an environmental impact too. Um, and I'm not saying not to use those because they're actually important from a human health and animal health point of view, but they do have an environmental impact. So again, having that discussion with your vet about kind of weighing up the the benefit and the risk of using your antiparasitics at certain times of the year is very is a very very wise thing to do um but picking up your poo can certainly reduce um those parasites from traveling from pet to pet and um also um i've lost my train of thought now um just on just on the the picking up of the poo after the animals like I was and this has been a bugbear of mine since I was covering local council meetings for Midlands 103 all those years ago like there is an issue around people collecting the poo and then throwing the poo bag with the poo in it in the hedge because we don't have particularly here in the Midlands we don't have many bins they there have been policy changes I was down in La Hinch over the summer where they had and I've seen them in Tullamore where you have the poo bag dispenser and a bin attached to it. So until the more we have the poo bag dispenser, but no bin, which just irritates the life of me because like I don't have a buggy to push, but I imagine it would be rather unpleasant to push a buggy and, you know, and I've seen parents try to do it and I just, the bin thing really gets my goat like we do need to provide pet owners with places to dispose of this um, safely as well and not 
a give out to pet owners all the time for maybe not disposing it correctly. Like if we're not giving people, I know some people are always going to break the rules and some people are always going to be disrespectful, but the vast majority of people will try to do the right thing. We just need to offer, you know, simple things like a little bin, like, and especially like the only tiny little bins that only a poo bag would fit down into, not like household rubbish sized bins, you know, simple things like that can be done very easily. No, I agree. I look, I absolutely I love to see a poo bin. Um, we wouldn't have a lot of them where I'm living either. And I'm I'm living in a fairly populated area. Um, but I suppose if they're not there, though, I still think it is beholden upon the, the person with the poo to bring it home. Um, it doesn't give you an excuse to throw it up into the tree and have the, the tree like it's they're like Christmas trees with the multicolored poo bags in them. Fairly grim ones. Um, but I think that absolutely, you know, having a chat or lobbying your local council to put in some more poobins is is never never a bad idea because certainly i think that would help to have more positive behaviors around the poo for sure well ellen i think we've created a new uh a drinking game for radio how many times can two people mention <laughs> dog poo on the airway in the space of a 20 minute interview but uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on let's go green and we might we might chat again in the future but it's a uh, it's great to see that uh people in in the veterinary world are also taking an interest and that's the wonderful thing about let's go green and finding out where people are working and what you're doing to do our, your bit for um tackling climate change at an individual level so So thank you very much for joining us on Let's Go Green, Ellen. No worries. Thanks a million. Stay tuned. I'll be back after the break. Hello, you are listening to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103 with myself, Ashling O'Rourke. I'm just going to uh, take a moment to thank each and every one of you who has listened to the show since we went on air in April 2020. Since we were last on air, we got the fantastic news that on our podcast, we have breached 100,000 downloads. So that means over 100,000 people have listened to all the episodes of Let's Go Green on Midlands103.com, either through Spotify, Apple or indeed Google Podcasts. And this is a big thank you to all of you because these figures do matter. And it's fantastic to see all of you tuning in from right around the globe, which has been absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much to each and every one of you who listens to the show on a regular basis, whether you do so through your own preferred podcast app, whether it's through Midlands103.com and the podcast section there, or indeed live on FM every Monday night from seven. It it matters and I appreciate it. And thank you very much for taking the time to um, book an appointment with Let's Go Green each and every week. And this is your reminder to get in contact with me. So if there is an item that you'd like discussed here on the show, get in contact with me, suggest it to me. I'm always happy to to hear from you. So if you want to speak with me directly, go on to midlands103.com, click on the on-air team button. You'll find um, a picture of me and, and my name and you can send me an email directly with any suggestions or indeed just comments you have on the show. So feel free to get in touch. And sometimes I'm not the quickest at getting back to emails, but I do read them all and I do appreciate them. So thank you once again for staying tuned to Let's Go Green and in particular, of course, to our sponsors, Airgrid Group, but also to the team at Midlands 103 HQ in Tullamore who help keep the show on the road each and every week. 
Coming up after the break, we're going to be joined by Professor John Sweeney. Now, Professor John Sweeney is a climatologist, an expert in climate change. And we're going to have a chat about communications on climate change and the impact that we can have through the language that we use when we're talking about this very impending problem. And I am, yeah, I really enjoyed the chat with John and I hope you do too. So stay tuned. We will be back with Let's Go Green just after these. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you're enjoying our show so far this week. Well, it has been a week across the country of bracing ourselves to for very first storm Kieran and for some of us we missed it altogether for others houses were inundated with floodwaters and businesses lost thousands of euro and it left me wondering about the conversations we've been having a couple of weeks earlier um, when the floods hit Middleton around the weather warning system and around how we talk about climate change in general and whether or not the language we're using is helping us engage in the conversation and who better to have this conversation with than Professor John Sweeney um, Professor Emeritus of Maynooth University. John you're very welcome back to the show. Hi Ashleen. John the way we talk about climate change and the the language that we use to discuss it is you know, the words that we use, we know words that we use have, have power and how we use them affects the amount of power and how we're understood. But it is important that we communicate clearly around climate change and what we're heading into so that the, the general public understands it. How do you think we're doing as a country in terms of communicating climate change, first off, and, and, and you know, the level of engagement around that? Well, I think there is a problem over communicating climate change. There, there's no doubt about it. Um, if we were communicating it successfully, I think we would have had more action mm. over the past few decades in tackling it. And, you know, it, it, it's a subject that has, I suppose, perplexed climate scientists for a long time now. And I've had a few sort of thoughts about it, which may be helpful for you. Um, the first one is that scientists are generally very poor communicators. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, uh, we don't get the message across clearly uh, in many cases. And that's partly because of the makeup of our education and science education system, whereby Climatologists and other scientists, uh, their career advancement is based on, you know, writing papers, going to conferences. Um, it's not based on communicating mm. with the general public. Um, there's no kudos in that for many academics, for example, um, and they don't get rewarded for it. And as a result, you find that climate scientists are, are not very good communicators in general. Um uh, one of the things that has perplexed me over the years is that um, the, the climate sceptics are actually better communicators than the climate scientists. And that's partly because they have been brought up almost inevitably in frequently um, an education system without science. Many of them are not scientists, but they have been brought up in a, a social science paradigm of debating of knowing how to make your arguments, of knowing what points to put across. And they are very effective at that. And as a result, you find that 
you know, they can make mince meat out of people like me in the debate. Uh, although, you know, I, I still would feel that truth is on my side all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting that message across. And many climate scientists don't get that message across as effectively as they as they would like. The second and John, thing, is that... Yeah. Like, is that changing at all? Like, like, it strikes me that there's a parallel here when we look at medical doctors. And, you know, if, I, it, you know, anytime I've been to hospital, I want the doctor that is qualified and has the year's experience and, and has seen this problem before and knows what they're doing. Um, and they might have, you know, degrees and leaving cert points and all these awards out their ears. But if they're not able to communicate to me clearly and give me the confidence that they know what they're talking about, I'm not likely to trust them. Um, And I know that in medicine, it's changed a little bit in recent years where there is an an element of communicating skills incorporated into how doctors and nurses indeed are, are educated. Is that being recognized in like in academic circles where science, if you're going to do, say, a degree in science or even a master's, um, that there's an element of communications involved in it? It has. Is there a change at all underway? I think there is. I mean, um, if I go back a couple of decades um you know, most of the organizations I was involved in were very scientifically orientated, where, you know, X causes Y to, to do Z. And it was almost like you had little arrows and boxes and it was predetermined what was going to happen. And you came you came across as a black and white message carrier. But then even climate scientists began to realize that people don't react like this. People mm. don't follow those nice little physical laws that we were all brought up on. So we have to bring in uh, an element of of irrationality. We have to bring an element of human decision-making, human priorities, human policy-making even into the story. And I think that has permeated a lot of the message from from the best climate scientists in recent years. They they have begun to realise that you can't convey a doom and gloom message of science in the way that traditionally we might have attempted to do it without turning your audience off completely. And if you do that, you you lose the whole point of the exercise, which is to convey the urgency, convey the seriousness of the of the situation. So one of the things that I think has been quite distinctively different in recent years has been that interdisciplinarity approach has become more, more important. I know that if you were to write a research application for a European fund at the moment, one of the first questions that you would be asked is, is this interdisciplinary? And are you bringing things to bear from a wider range of perspectives than simply a narrow focus on science? And I think that has worked. Um, It's a long way to go. And uh, it, it is, I suppose, still bedeviled by the fact that you know, people who want to get on the career ladder uh, go into their little um, offices, do their papers and conferences, get their H-index on Google up and then get promoted. Um, so, you know, we still have to tackle that problem. And there is, a, there, there is therefore another approach which has been, I suppose, found to be more effective. And that is 
what we call the narrative approach, where in, instead of conveying histograms and conveying bald statistics which wash over the heads of people, it's often more successful to tell stories, mm -hmm. to tell stories of personal experience, to tell stories of where people learned and didn't learn what worked in terms of their voyage, if you like, in tackling climate change. And that has become much more important also in terms of climate justice concepts, which were really, I think, not really heard of 20 years ago, but are now uh, moving centre stage. And a lot of that is due to young people. A lot of it is due to the Fridays for Future people, the people concerned about intergenerational equity. If you talk to a physicist about intergenerational equity 20 years ago, he or she would go blank. Uh, there would be absolutely no comprehension. And I think that kind of human dimension has come in now more successfully um, in, in the past few years. It's not widespread enough yet, but it is beginning to put, if you like, the personal story, the human dimensions of climate change more effectively uh, out to the people that you want to you want to communicate with. And like those of us who work in radio, like we know a good story will get people listening. A good story that people can relate to will help communicate a message or help educate people around any issue. We, we like even when I started training in 2004 in journalism, you know, the first thing you're told is numbers don't work on radio. It's fine in print. But if you start talking in statistics on the radio, people can't, you know, grasp it because it's just we need to be able to see it and hear it um, in, in, instead of just hearing it. So that's why, you know, in radio, we, we talk in stories. Um, But on that, like frequently you know we would might say across current affairs programming or news reports or weather reports and there's a there's a yellow warning out this afternoon or there's a red warning for the east coast or you know and it seems to me that perhaps we as a general population have completely misunderstood those codes that we think yellow is something we don't need to worry about at all amber's yeah, it's going to be a little bit bad. And red's when we really need to pay attention. That's when we get the day off school. So does there need to be an education of the public as well, not just scientists, about how we talk about all of these issues? There does. I mean, one of the, the issues about warnings and coded colour warnings is that you have to be consistent over time. And they are therefore based on certain objective criteria in terms of the rainfall rate, the wind strength and so on. And once you start departing from that, then you dilute the whole effect of the of the process. So the other aspect, of course, is the cry wolf aspect. Um, mm -hmm. People become blasé after a while. Oh, we survived this on orange warning. It can't be too bad. We won't worry about the next one. And you get this, this kind of um, degradation of susceptibility concept that goes on over time as well. Um, I don't know how to tackle that. I mean, you, you can give the information out, you can um, humanise it as much as possible. But at the end of the day, you're conveying certain information facts to people. And if they choose to ignore them, it's hard to know what to do with them at that point. Um, having said that, you know, there may be a case for having slightly higher thresholds for some of these warnings. Um, they may not be as appropriate uh, to, to Ireland as they are to somewhere in Central Europe, for example. It may well be that there is a need for customization of them. 
But I think, you know, there's no getting away from the fact that you do need a certain objectivity here because um, over time you'll degrade the whole concept in the public mind and that's when you lose the, the audience completely. I think the other aspect is, of course, that you're often conveying bad news. Yeah. You're often telling people, oh, it's going to get really stormy tonight. Um, there's a danger to life and limb. Uh, and people don't want to hear bad news generally. And that, that applies to the, the climate message as well, that if, you know, you're a doom and gloom merchant, as I am, <laughs> um, as you know, um, then, you know, people will switch off. You have to have some optimism. You have to have uh, something that gives them hope as well, that uh, I can change my lifestyle. I can do something which helps the problem rather than saying we're all doomed and throw our hands in the air. And that's that's another balancing act which climate scientists, I think, um, sometimes haven't really come to terms with how to how to transmit the message in such a way that people get the urgency of action, but don't necessarily have the um, sort of the fatalism that you know there's nothing we can do about it. Therefore, we're going to ignore the message uh, completely. One of the one of the things which actually um, I found very successful in recent years was that some of the people that convey the message come from the least likely communities. So artists, people involved in literature, often have a way of connecting with the public mm. uh, in a better way. Uh, through their medium than, for example, uh, somebody like myself rabbiting on about statistics on global climate. And, and so, you know, I think we have to use that full range of communication skills as much as possible um, to, to get the message across. Ultimately, um, I think the problem is a problem of framing. Um, how do you frame the problem? You know, do you frame it as we're all doomed? Do you frame it as there is hope? Do you frame it as it's bad, but we can still get out of this? Um, and, and that's where, you know, the balance, I think, has to be struck as well uh, between conveying facts and conveying hope. Um, and as, and you're quite right. I mean, jargon is a no-no for mm. a lot of this. Um, you know, to, to, to start using um, jargon-ridden phrases does switch people off very quickly. To start using sort of um, uh, shorthand for uh, international organizations, et cetera, et cetera. So th there is a, there's a whole spectrum of ways in which the message can be conveyed better um, and whereby, you know, the, the target audience, if you like, can be accessed uh, more effectively. Um, that's fine. And, and, you know, it's a skill set, which I don't know many people that have all mm. of those skill sets um, because of the way we're, we're brought up and we're educated. It tends to be, you know, one or the other. We tend to be emotional about the subject or we tend to be objective about the subject. And getting the balance between those two, I think, is the key to good communication. Um, and, and I'm not sure I'm, I'm the best person to even try that. Oh, well, I, I might disagree on, on that one, John. But like looking ahead now, like in the next, what, um, six, seven months, we're going to have local elections across the country and we're going to have potential councillors coming to the front door looking for our votes. And it'll be interesting to see how climate change um 
is discussed as part of that campaign for regardless of party, whether or not it's even discussed as part of it at a local level. It's when particularly when it's politicians talking about things or even new entrants into political life. There tends to be a fear to discuss things like climate change, because if I'm not a scientist, well, then I might not be 100 percent right. But then at the same time, they can't ignore the issue because it's one that we're all facing. So it is a it's a particular challenge, I think, that will be faced in the next six months and one that might be educational for all of us. Yeah, I think so. Um I think it's fair to say that very few people will actually ask the question at the doorstep of a politician. Um, They didn't at the last election. They probably won't at this one either. And I can understand that because, you know, people have um, they have an urgency about local issues. They have Mm -hmm. an urgency about the the next month's mortgage or or how they're going to get through the year or where they're going to where they're going to find a home or a a property. That kind of thing naturally moves up the scale for them more so than a kind of nebulous concept that, oh, the climate is changing, but maybe it won't affect me for another 10 years or 20 years. I'm more concerned with press issues. So politicians won't get asked the question, the hard question at the door. Uh, And also, of course, there is a tendency, especially among some politicians, to try and personalise these issues, you know, to, to, to label the, the bearer of the message, if you like, as as uh, the person to be attacked rather than the message itself. I mean, I, I recall um, one uh, senior person in an agricultural organisation at the age at his AGM uh, a couple of years ago saying the average environmentalist wouldn't know a heifer from a hoover you know and that's the kind of level um of mm-hmm. uh, sort of personalization that you get which takes away right away the scientific arguments um yeah. and begins to to target play the person rather than the ball and a lot of local politicians will react to that very quickly. Um, and, and that's unfortunate because the message is often lost then. Um, and it's an important message which will affect everybody sooner or later. Um, and it's time that I suppose local politicians came to realise that. There are some really good local politicians around who have grasped that message. And they are to be admired and supported because they're often in the forefront of of ridicule and in the forefront of attack mm. by by others. So um, that personalization issue, I think, is 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 one which will. Uh, it's an unfortunate one, but it detracts from the message as well and detracts from effective communication too. If you were to leave the conversation with one message around this, like, is it that we need to, that we all need, that those of us that are interested in these issues, that we all need to try better and harder at telling it in a story format and and getting the message across a bit more clearly, that we need to put more emphasis on not just the data, but actually sharing the story? Or is, is there something more that we could be doing? Well, I think uh, the, the ultimate um, success story for a, a climate scientist is when the audience become advocates and when people um, are, are willing to advocate the importance of the topic to their friends, to their neighbours, to their uh, peers and so on. Uh, and that's really, I suppose, the, the measure of success. 
that you have actually got the message across when people start talking about it over coffee, start talking mm -hmm. about it in the in the laundry or in the hairdressers or whatever, and talk about it in terms of this is going to affect my children and my grandchildren. I better think about it a bit more seriously. Um, so the message, I suppose, um, ultimately is that people should not be scared of becoming advocates uh, and becoming communicators themselves with each other, um, because ultimately the message has to be diffused. It has to reach all levels. And the measure of success of um, of a communicator um, in the media, I suppose, is ultimately have you convinced your listeners that this is something worth thinking about seriously? And it's worth remembering that one time or another, people did think that cigarettes were healthy, that they were safe, that, that plastic bags, like, you know, that the idea of banning plastic bags from supermarkets was just a, a ridiculous joke. But, you know, we got that right, or at least we improved the situation. So hopefully with, with, with more discussions, um, we can we can uh, share the story a little bit more effectively, John. Hopefully. I, I think... Um... You know, sometimes people are scared of change. Mm -hmm. um, and with cigarettes and plastic bags, yes, there was an element of change, but it wasn't all that radical in a way. Um, with climate change, we are going to have face, we're going to face radical changes in how we organise society, how we feed society, how we travel. Um, and that that's a bit scary, but, you know, we can overcome that. The great ability of the human race has always been its adaptability, its mm -hmm. ability to respond to change. That's why we're the dominant species. And this is this is just the next test for us. Unfortunately, it is a case of um, adapt or die. And I know that sounds dramatic, but we are where we are, as they say. Well, Professor John Sweeney from Maynooth University, thank you very much for joining us on this week's episode of Let's Go Green. You're welcome. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you've enjoyed the show so far this evening. And unfortunately, we are almost out of time. But just before I go, I wanted to give a shout out to Tina Claffey. So Tina Claffey is a well-known photographer from County Offaly and her work has been exhibited right around the country. But later on this week, on Thursday, a new exhibition which Tina and a number of artists are part of is being launched in Burr Castle. So Peatlands is a new immersive experience and it promises to be mind-blowing quite frankly it's absolutely phenomenal and I highly recommend that you do check it out I was supposed to be going to the launch myself on Thursday evening but unfortunately something else has come up and um, I'm missing out on it which is a real shame and I'm very disappointed about that but I want to give uh, Tina and the gang at uh, Burcastle Domain the, the best wishes for the exhibition I have seen loads of pictures of it and I know how great it is so if you're in the Burr area on Thursday please be sure to check it out or indeed it's there, I believe, for next for several weeks. So check it out when you can. Thanks to each of the contributors on this week's episode of Let's Go Green. Thanks once again to all of you who've helped us breach over 100,000 listens to the Let's Go Green podcast through the Midlands 103 podcast section and indeed on your preferred podcast app, whether that be Google, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And once again, if you'd like to get in contact with me to propose an item for the show, please do so through the on-air team section of midlands103.com or connect with me on 
LinkedIn. I'm at Ashling O'Rourke CC. That is, though, all we have time for on this week's episode of the show. Have a great week. Stay safe. And I'll be back same time next week with another edition of Let's Go Green.